0: word together because that's kind of what I'm here for really and we're going to look at John chapter 11 and as uh, Ben has already said we're going to think a little bit about, uh, about rhythm and uh, I had a pair of, uh, I had some rhythm instruments in my car by mistake, I should have brought them in, we could have uh, done, done a practical here but uh, we're going to read together um, John's gospel chapter 11 and begin to read at verse 1, John chapter 11 verses 1 to 16. Now, a man named Lazarus was ill, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you're going back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk in the daytime will not stumble for they see by the world's light. It is when people walk at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. This is the word of the Lord. number of years ago, a friend of mine was speaking at the church where I was minister at the time. And he was talking about the impact that having children had had on his life. And he was saying that um, once his children came along, his whole routine, his whole way of, of, of doing things had been completely changed. And everything seemed to revolve around his kids. Now this was a time when in our own journey as a family, we were still a couple We didn't have any children. Uh, Jan may even have been expecting Laura. But I I was in that wonderful position of being a yet-to-be parent. And I was listening to Paul as he said this. And I remember distinctly thinking to myself, when we have kids, that isn't going to happen. Our kids are not going to take over our life like that. We're not going to spend all of our time focused. We're not going to organize our week around where our kids want taken and what they want and what they expect and where they are. And I look back at that wonderful naive state in which I was at that point. I look back as I was just leaving this morning. To be told by my daughter, Dad, my internet access isn't working. You can't go out all day until it's sorted out. And then she said to me, Dad, I've just dropped my iPod in the washing up water, but we won't go into that. (laughs) Have you ever tried drying an iPod without switching it on? Not good. But, um, but how, how because, and, and many of us who, who've had children or who've got children will know that reality that actually when they come into their, your life, they do very often are the people who organise so much of it. What you're doing, what you're not doing, where you're going, when you're going to be there, what you're going to eat, how you're going to eat it all tends to be organised around your children. And maybe it's for all of us it's not our children. But I suspect that there are those things in all of our lives that actually kind of set the, the milestones, if you like, or set the framework for what we do. Some of us, it may be our jobs. How many of you, the time you get up in the morning, is determined by the job you do, or, or determined by the bus you need to catch, or, or determined by the shift that you're on? for some of us it, it might be um it might be something else completely my granddad, for example who always on a tuesday used to go and get his pension you know and that his week revolved around going to get his pension on a tuesday it was so funny because he used to go to the post office draw his pension out so we could walk into the tsb and pay it into his bank account and he would never have his pension paid into his bank account because that no must be tuesday morning I think it was because my grandma had all the neighbours in on a Tuesday morning It was, it was quite happy to go. But, but we all have those things, don't we? Those th- either that set our days. You know, the, uh, some of the soaps. How many of us set our evening around the starting time or, or finishing time of Corrie or EastEnders? Or such like, or complain if there's a church meeting and we've got to set our video to make sure we don't miss that vital episode to find out whether Phil Mitchell is, is any nicer than he was this time last week, or, or whatever it is we, we watch. And, um, but most of us, I suspect, most of us have those things that set the rhythm of our lives that that are the things that kind of and we need those things to be fair i can remember when i started life as a minister as a a proper minister in those days in in a church and i can remember the first monday morning sitting in my study jan had gone to work thinking what am i supposed to do I mean, it's great, it? you have your induction service, and you do all the, uh, all the business on the Sunday, and you take two services, and you get up on Monday morning, and for me, having always worked in an office with structures and systems, so suddenly discover you had four days that you had to work out for yourself what you should be doing and very quickly actually began to say well wednesdays i'm always going to go to the local school and tuesdays i'm going to always pop into the pensioners drop in and you begin to build that that rhythm that structure because as human beings we need that it's part and parcel of how we tick and how we function as people but i want to ask you a question think for a minute about the rhythm of your life what is it that sets it is it the bus timetables is it the day the markets on is it the soaps is it your job is it getting your pension what are the things that set the rhythm just stop for a minute and think about those things that set the rhythm of your life is it your children is it a parent perhaps you need to look after and then ask yourself this where does God fit in where does God set the rhythm of your life, Which bits of your life do you actually line up with God's will and with God's purpose? Because that's the question that I want us to kind of wrestle with a little bit this morning. Because it seems to me that as Christians who are living in a, in a 21st century world where there are so many things that will set our priorities and set our timetables, we need to make that conscious effort... To say, and where does God connect? Where does God fit in with the rhythm of my life? I was amazed to discover, you know, that until the railways came in about 18-something or other, we didn't even have a single central timing system in the UK. Did you know that? That apparently the time in Nottingham was different to the time in London and was different to the time in, in Manchester. And I don't know what time it was in Lum at that time. But... Um, But actually it's it's a relatively recent thing. It's only about the last couple of hundred years that we've even lived by the fact that it is the same time in in every everybody's house. In the UK. And it was all because of the railways. Because you couldn't have a train arriving at four o'clock in Nottingham and then get into London at half past three. Because it's, it's a different time in London. Which was what was happening. I mean, it, it sounds crazy to us. But you realise, of course, that years ago it took you three days. I mean, it took a week to get from London to London, wouldn't it? And apparently you used to go. Do you know, I, I, I only discovered this, that, that there was a, a protest movement against church music. High church music. That used to, and people used to, Organised Handel's Messiah concerts in London as a protest against high church music. And apparently one of the most in-your-face groups of people that used to go to London was the East Lancashire Baptists. And this is this is actually in if you read the history of church music in eight, 17 and 1800s, that's what you did. You practiced the Messiah and then went down to London to sing it in protest against the high church music and all the indulgences of the high church. Sounds great to me. I think we should uh, sort of that. That's the equivalent of of, of fighting for the marginalised, which has nothing to do with my sermon, but I just remembered it. But. Um, But in this society, where now we do function, don't we? And I mean, again, talking about the internet, you you have to even say which part of the world you're in now to know what time it is. Where does God fit in? In this society that's winding us up and wants us all to, to work in time directive and tachographs in lorries and everything else, where does God fit in? Where does God touch base with our lives? That's the question that I, I want us to ask. Because I, I think one of the other things that concerns me is I sometimes travel around churches, and, and, and you'll realize that part of my job very often is to help churches through some of the tricky stuff, some of the difficulties that inevitably come our way in church life. And uh, one of the things I've begun to sense, you know, is that a lot, of, a lot of Christians, it seems to me, have got a sense of purpose for their lives, that's very much centred around themselves and their own aspirations. It, let me try and explain that. It seems to me that, that we've, we've very much begun to present the gospel. You know, years ago the gospel was all about your, your, your sins being forgiven. Your debt being paid. You are a guilty, worthless, wretched sinner. And Jesus has paid the price. And you look at some of the hymns that we were singing in the early 20th century. It was all about that kind of stuff. That was the, the essence of the gospel. And I don't know if you've noticed... But an awful lot more of the way we proclaim the gospel today is about the life in all its fullness bit. You know, that, that Jesus will give you purpose, that Jesus will give you meaning, that Jesus will change your life, that Jesus is awesome. That's one of the, you know, whenever you ever go to a young people's gathering, it's always about how awesome God is. Actually, that's the, the secret. If you ever have to speak to young people, you just get an ordinary sermon and put the word awesome into every other sentence and it, it'll go down a storm and um, but that that's and i just wonder if in and that's right and there's nothing wrong with that because jesus said i come that you may have life in all its fullness but i kind of sometimes think that that a lot of us particularly in the society we live today where we're constantly told you know it's all about me it's all about making sure that i get fulfilled and i, I get all the things i want and and i i i am lacking nothing that that In that journey for self-realization, in that journey for all the things I want, church can be quite an attractive option. I mean, church is all right, isn't it, really, if you think about it, particularly if you've got family. You know, it means that your kids have got other kids of their own age, and the space, and if you need a birthday party, you always borrow the church hall. You know, going to church is all right. But it it kind of worries me that if the only reason we're part of God's family is because it's serving our purposes, then we're going to become very disaffected, and very upset, and fall out a lot when church doesn't serve our purposes. And I think, again, we have to come back to basics a little bit and say, am I a Christian because it suits me? Am I trying to live out my life's purpose and, and see the church as something that helps me do that? Or am I committed to living out God's purpose? Is actually what we are as church not something that serves my ends, but it's the means through which I serve God's ends? Now that may sound like a very subtle difference, but I think it's a very significant difference. And it brings us back to this question. Where does God set the rhythm? Where does God touch the points of our lives Yeah, I, um, one of the ways in which I, I try and make sense of that is uh, one of my strange foibles is I love boiled celery don't ask me why, but I love boiled celery and I know I'm in a very rare group of people in, in respect of this and it's interesting that whenever I have boiled celery people always say are you trying to lose weight and I say no, I just like boiled celery and, um, you know, nobody likes boiled celery. Well, I'd, And, and that, that's the kind of what I mean. You know, there, there are loads of people in our world who eat celery. But most of us eat it as a kind of way of keeping our jaw occupied because we'd really like some chocolate. But we know that it's better for us to eat celery. I mean, how many people, if you're honest, eat celery, not because you like it, but because you know it's, it's better than a, a Mars bar or whatever, or it's a great way of stopping that nervous... I can see lots of people nodding, so I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up. Can you see the difference? I am one of that rare breed that eats celery because I actually like it. Because it's part of my system. It's what what makes me feel. Other people are eating it because it's good for them. I don't really. If it wasn't good for me, I wouldn't do this. If it wasn't serving the purpose I wanted to, I wouldn't. We like that with church sometimes. I do it because I expect it to deliver the goods for me. And it seems to me that so much of what Jesus talks about when he says, come and follow me and take up your cross, is about saying, just do it. Just do it because you know it's, it's what it's about. And the Baptist Union at the moment is talking about us being called to be missionary disciples. And we're trying to work out what that means. But I think one of the things it means is about being a people whose rhythm is set by God. Being a people whose lives are ticking to God's beat. And one of the things that impresses me about Jesus when I look at the Jesus of the Gospels is that he seems to be someone who is constantly going at his own pace, going at his own rhythm. Not allowing the world around him to dictate to him what he should be doing. You know, you you, you see this this episode in the gospel where there's this crazy crowd who are making massive demands and asking questions and, and wanting things done and wanting things sorted out. And then the gospel writer tells us, and there's Jesus in the middle of it, playing with a stick in the sand. And they're all getting all worked up about what he should be doing and what he shouldn't be doing. And Jesus is just playing in the sand. Or there's another occasion when, uh, when um, you know, or the, or Jesus is doing things, and all the authorities are saying, "You can't do that on the Sabbath. You can't do this on the Sabbath." And Jesus is saying, "Man, what day it is? For goodness' sake, look at what needs doing. Look at the people's lives who are being." Or Jairus' daughter. I mean, that's got to be one of the classics. I mean, have you ever put yourself in the shoes of Jairus when Jesus is dealing with the woman who's touched his cloak? I mean, can you imagine how he must have felt when he goes to Jesus? My daughter's dying. Please, you've got to come straight away. And Jesus is coming. He's saying, yes, yes, there's hope. I know that there's no other hope for her but Jesus, but at least Jesus is coming to my house. And then Jesus stops in the middle when the clock is ticking, when everything is desperate, and starts talking to a woman who doesn't even want to talk to him. When Laura was born, when our daughter was born, she, she wasn't very well when she was first emerged into the world and were all sorts of things had to be done to her and um, the, we, they, it was very touch and go in those first half, half an hour, hour of her life and there was one particular thing that needed to be done to her and they said that apparently her blood vessels had collapsed and they needed to put this little tiny tube into her but they said we can't do it until we've got an x-ray machine and I said well get one and they said well we've got to wait for a porter I said, well, never mind a pot. Tell me where it is. I'll go and get it. No, you can't get it. You've got to be a poor... Never mind. But, you know, and you can imagine... Jairus must have been a bit like that. Well, can you imagine a dad whose daughter, his teenage daughter, is dying? And Jesus is talking to some smelly old lady that nobody likes. And you're going, for goodness sake, Jesus. But Jesus has none of it. Jesus just goes at his own rhythm. I mean, it was pretty impressive what he did to his daughter as well in the end. And here... In this story in John 11, we have another one of those episodes. Very confusing introduction to an amazing miracle that eventually connects itself to the whole Easter story. And here we are in Lent. Here we are on our journey towards Good Friday and Easter Day. And this is one of the stories that traditionally we look at at this time of year. And here is Jesus. Just not responding to the expectations of the people around him. Let's just take a moment to refresh or remind ourselves of this opening part of the story. Jesus' friend, his close friend, Lazarus, is dying. His two sisters send a message to Jesus. So someone has come with great urgency, run halfway across Judea. I mean, you didn't exactly pick up the phone in those days and come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you've got to come straight away. I'm busy. What? What? God, you've got to come now. All the, all the expectations. Just stop for a minute and look at those different expectations. First of all, there's the emotional pressure. We're told by the writer of the, of the Gospel that Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved Martha. He loved Mary. Surely you would drop everything and come because you love these people. How can you love them if you don't do that? And then there's what I've called the situational pressure. I mean, imagine the poor bloke who ran to tell Jesus. He arrived, barely able to breathe, having run halfway between Bake Up and Rottenstall and, and, rotten and back again three times. For Jesus said, oh, I won't bother coming yet. He might as well have walked. Saved himself the effort. All the, well, my mum used to have a sign on her office door when she worked in school, you know, lack of foresight on your part does not involve a crisis on mine. <laughs> and... Um... I think Jesus was kind of saying that, well, not quite lack of foresight, but, um, you know, surely, surely you would come because it's such an urgent thing. And then there's the political pressure, the other side of the story, that the conflicting pressures on Jesus here. because, um, Because his disciples are saying, look, you can't go. You can't go to Judea. Look at what the Jews—they're waiting with stones in their hands to put you to death. You can't go, Jesus. So you've got Mary and Martha going, "Please, you've got to come now." And his disciples are going, "No, don't go there." And eventually, Thomas this devastating. Talk about faint praise. You know, we better go with him so we can die too. I mean, that, oh, great supporter there, eh? You know, that person at the church. You know, oh, I'm in favour, but it's a mistake. <laughs> Of course, you never have that at Lum, I've forgotten your lovely church. But um, all of that stuff going on, all of those different pressures. And I love the way Jesus responds. It's brilliant if you think about it. If Jesus had gone straight away, you'd be saying, Well, that's Jesus, isn't it? He just rushes around, just, just knee jerk reaction. If Jesus hadn't gone at all, you'd say, Well, Jesus doesn't care. Jesus is a coward. Jesus waits. And it strikes me, and I know there's all sorts of theological stuff that people read into these three days of waiting and how that's a sign of Jesus being in the tomb and everything else. But I think one of the reasons Jesus waited was because Jesus did things at his own rhythm. Jesus did things at his pace, in his time. Because he knew what his purpose and what his mission was. And he says it so often in John's gospel. My time has not yet come. Time has not yet come. Just wait. Time will come. The rhythm. The rhythm. The rhythm of Jesus. And I think there's something in that. Because many of us could look at that story and say, yes, I know what it feels like to be where Jesus is. I know what it feels like for the emotional pressures of those I love to be saying to me, why aren't you here? Why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? And the, the immediate needs, perhaps of the job I do or my responsibilities in church, are saying, I can't be with you. I need to do this. I need to do that. And, and my own physical well-being saying, well, actually, if, if you don't stop doing all of this stuff, you're not going to be around to do any of it. Although many of us will know, we call it work-life balance in in our world today. And I think for those of us who are Christians, that's work-life church balance very often. Very many of us, I suspect, can identify with that moment when Jesus is confronted with all of those conflicting pressures. And we need to ask ourselves, how can we be like him? How can we let him set our rhythm? How can we let him be the one? And Jesus uses this lovely metaphor. It's a metaphor of light in verse 9. He says that there's day and there's night. There's a time for working and there's a time when it's not. And if you think about it, it's not not a metaphor of light at all. It's a metaphor of time. Why is it light and dark? Because of time. And Jesus connects at that moment with a rhythm that God set up at the very earliest part of human history you look in Genesis chapter 8, when Noah comes out of the ark, God makes a covenantal promise with him. And part of that promise is that the seasons and day and night will never follow. And Jesus, just in this little verse, reconnects with that whole rhythm of God. And there are many reasons why Jesus is able to find that deeper rhythm. One is because he has a greater power. He's switched into a greater power. You see, everybody expected Jesus' reaction to Lazarus' declining condition to be one of prevention. That's what we want. That's what we want you to do, Jesus. We want you to stop him from dying. And isn't that what people kept whispering into you? Isn't that what the disciples were saying about Calvary and Jerusalem and the cross? Avoid it. Avoid it. Don't go there. Don't get into that. But Jesus says, listen, I, I, I don't want to show the world that I can avoid death. I want to show the world that I can defeat it. I can conquer it. I can rule supreme even over death. And we need to grasp hold of that greater power. How often do we limit or set our possibilities by human logic and human power. Same as Jairus, wasn't it? Jairus, come before she dies. As if Jesus can't do anything after. Because in human terms, we can't. It's Interesting, if you ever get trained in first aid, one of the things you get taught to do is to leave the dead. Because you can't do anything for them. Concentrate on the lead. Your emotions, say, deal with those who've died. Logic says, deal with those who are living, because at least you can do something for them. Because in human terms, that's the cut-off point. That's it. We can do no more. But God is bigger. And Jesus' rhythm is set by a far greater power than any earthly demand. The second thing is he sees the bigger picture because this story is like an onion. You can just keep peeling layers off it. It's a mind-blowing story when you see how it connects to everything that's going to happen in terms of the resurrection. The, you know, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And they are words that we repeat ourselves as a community of his people when we face death together. And of course, he's connecting through this story with the whole salvation drama. Of his death and resurrection there's a much bigger picture to see but both of those principles I would say you could go into Waterstones and pick up any management book any life realization book and they'll tell you those two things look for greater and bigger possibilities look at the bigger picture it seems to me that the main reason Jesus ticked to a different rhythm because he was God. He was God. He was the one who eons earlier had declared one day, let there be light, and there was light. He was the one who eons earlier had said, let the light be separated from the darkness, and it was, and let there be trees, and let there be flowers, and let there be plants, and let there be people. This is God here. And it seems to me that we diminish God an awful lot if we simply reduce him to someone who was good at seeing the bigger picture and realising there was more power available. And I think that's actually what ultimately we need to do. Yes, we do need to be a people who see the bigger picture. Yes, we do need to be people who can see the measure of God's power and build our beliefs and our structures of possibility around it. But at the end of the day, living life at God's rhythm is about being in tune with God. It's about allowing him and trusting him to set the pace, to set our priorities. Not because he can show us how or why, but because he's God. Because he's our creator. Because he's our sustainer. Because he's our saviour. Because he's our redeemer, because he is the one who eventually will become the outcome and the focal point and the consummation of human history. He's a God who doesn't need to explain himself to us, though in his grace he often does. And I think as we stand back and look at Jesus in this story... This is no great profound message I bring you today. I'm sorry if you wanted something deeper or more involved. But I think the message is simply this. Just tune in to this God. When you go about tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and this week and next week. And all the other things you've got to do. Tune in daily, hourly to this God. And say... Don't explain it to me because you're God. Just tell me, just show me what my priorities, what my pace, what my expectations, what my service needs to be. The thing that never ever ceases to impress me about Jesus, is miracles, wonderful, his teaching, profound, his actions, amazing. But it's that he almost stands head and shoulders above the gospel. As someone who simply is so in tune with a different order. And that is the God that we serve. That is the God who will be there tomorrow morning in whatever crisis or joy or busyness you face. And my message is dead simple. Tune in to him. Listen to him. Let your life be set by him. Amen.